Good morning. Uh, gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much uh, for your love and for your mercy and the fact that you uh, care for us and that it is your goal to restore us into perfect health and righteousness and eternal life. Uh, you know the needs of each one of us, and uh, several people have specific needs that they want to lift up before you, and we want to to assist and uh, and tell you that we'd love for you to look into their circumstances and, and work in their hearts and minds to bring every one of them into the purposes and privileges that you have for their life and intervene, as you know, best. Give us wisdom as we study today that we can draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing uh, lesson 11 in the quarterly uh, Genesis. The title is Joseph, Master of Dreams. Yes. I found it. I found the quote from last week okay. about Esau okay. a dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yep. I will read it. Okay, go ahead. While Jacob was wrestling with the angel, another heavenly messenger was sent to Esau. In a dream, Esau beheld his brother for 20 years of exile. He witnessed his grief at finding his mother dead. He saw him encompassed by the host of God. The God of his fathers was with him. The two companies at last approached each other, the desert uh, chief leading his men of war. And Jacob, with his wives and children, followed by long lines of flocks and herds. Leading upon his staff, the patriarch went forward, pale and disabled from his recent conflict. He walked slowly and painfully, but his countenance was lightened up with the joy and peace. A sight of that crippled sufferer, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and they wept. Even the hearts of Esau's rude soldiers were touched. They could not account for the change that had come over their kids. And what's the reference? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 198. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So, uh, we're, we're Sabbath lesson. We're doing the lesson points to the first paragraph uh, that uh, Joseph occupies more space in the book of Genesis than any other patriarch. <laughs> Joseph occupies more space in the book of Genesis than any other patriarch. Why? Well, my, my thoughts are, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the Bible record, the Old Testament record, is, is an example for us. It's recorded to give us lessons, to teach us something. And the Bible uh, record is a record of real historic people doing real historic things. Uh, and Joseph's life record, as we read in Genesis, is an accurate record of what he went through and, and what's recorded there. But it's more than that. It's more than a history book. The record we have also is chosen to not just give us history of people, but to focus on the plan of salvation being worked out. This is why, again, we focus on the lives of Abraham's children through Isaac and Jacob, because through them, the Messiah will come. But even more than this, many of these uh, events are recorded because they're object lessons to teach larger realities on multiple levels uh, about the plan of salvation. The battle between the two antagonistic principles of, of fear and selfishness versus, versus love and truth. God's kingdom versus Satan's kingdom. And so these Bible stories reveal that without God's love working in our hearts, fear and selfishness, sin, corrupts us and will lead us to betray and exploit others, even those of our own family. It shows that. It's evidence of that. So the first lesson from Joseph is a personal lesson, a lesson from which all of us can benefit. It's a lesson that reveals the damage of unremedied fear and selfishness and what it can do, what sin can do, even in the lives of people we supposedly love. It is a lesson that despite loving a person, you can love someone, that person may still wrong and injure you. do us an injustice. But Joseph's life also reveals that despite injustice done, if we trust God, stay faithful to God, live in harmony with his methods and principles, that God can overrule and bring good. And even if we don't always get temporal restoration that Joseph eventually got, those who stay faithful have character restoration or development. They are free of guilt and shame that sin brings. 
So let's, let's go into some detail. Joseph's brothers allowed their fears, their insecurities, their jealousy, uh, their selfishness to take control of their actions and hearts and minds. Had they truly loved Joseph, they would have celebrated him. They would have rejoiced for him, but they didn't actually love him. And they saw Joseph as a threat to their position, their power, their authority. And so they sold him as a slave and then misled their father to believing that he had been killed. Sometimes people will say, well, they love themselves more than they love Joseph. Have you heard that kind of statement? They love themselves more. They didn't love him. They loved themselves more. Well, in actual fact, if you understand love in the godly definition, they actually didn't love themselves either. They didn't love Joseph, but they also didn't love themselves. I want you to see this point. Their actions were not good for Joseph, but their actions were not good for themselves either. They did not experience, by their actions, improved mental and emotional health, improved relationships with their father, better sleep, more mature, trustworthy character from the choices that they made and how they treated Joseph. They damaged themselves. Everybody see that? Yes, their actions harmed Joseph, but it harmed themselves. And who was harmed worse? Joseph or the brothers who betrayed and sold him? Who was harmed worse? The brothers were harmed worse. See, when somebody sins against us, they can damage our bodies. They can damage our reputations. They can damage our emotional world, uh, make us angry or hurt or disappointed. They can even get into our thinking sometimes, and we can have damage what we call psychology, in which we think bad thoughts about ourselves. I'm no good. Every, nobody likes me. I, I'm, I'm ruined. I'm ugly. Uh, so we can have uh, psychology damaged. But when someone sins against us, they cannot sear our consciences. They cannot corrupt our characters. Our souls remain pure. We may be wounded from the wrong that's done, but our characters are not warped by that. Our hearts don't become hardened. Yes? In light of that, how would you interpret what the brothers did when Joseph pulled a fast one on them and they protected or tried to protect their father and their younger brother through those years despite what they had done? Yes, so now we're jumping 20 years down the road, okay, uh, and, and that's in my notes a little bit later, <laughs> okay, but to, to jump 20 years down the road, uh, so even though they harmed themselves, the plan of salvation is that if um, we don't totally reject God and we actually follow him, he can heal the damage, and the healing can come later, okay, but the injury was still inflicted. You don't need to... Um, set a broken leg in a cast and go to physical therapy if the leg was never broken. But a broken leg can be healed. You don't need to ask forgiveness of a sin and have the guilt and shame removed if you've never committed the sin. So they harmed themselves, and now you're focusing righteously on the fact that God can heal the harm if we cooperate with him. Let's continue on with this, though. I want you to see the process here, because many people miss this. I can't tell you how many patients that I see don't understand that the person who wronged them harmed themselves more than they were harmed by the wrong. They don't get that. And so they're angry, they're resentful, they're bitter. When someone sins against us, their sin against us cannot damage our characters or harden our hearts or corrupt our souls. We may grieve, we may cry out in pain, but just like Jesus at the cross or Stephen when being stoned or Paul when he's being whipped or Peter when he's being imprisoned, all those people were wrong, but their characters were not corrupted by the sins against them. But when we sin against another person, when we do evil to another person, even if we're not caught, there's no societal condemnation. We're not punished. We're not held accountable. We have seared our conscience, hardened our heart, warped our characters, corrupted ourselves. The brothers did not love Joseph, but they also did not love themselves. 
The only way to actually love oneself is to love others. Let you process that for a minute. Yes. Can you love others if you don't love yourself? Okay. That's the circle of love, isn't it? You have to have a healthy self-love, which means it's not coming from self. Where is it coming from? You have to have a love connection with God. And then that love has to be put into action. And as you put that love into action to be altruistic, caring, compassionate, concerned, ministering to others, that's actually healthy for you. If you are a hoarder and you, and you use others to advance and benefit yourself at their expense, you're actually injuring yourself. It's not an act of love for self. Joseph suffered terrible injustice from his, his, his brothers. His human rights were violated. He was not treated as an individual, but as property. He was taken by slave traders, sold as a slave in the slave market to Potiphar. There's no question that what happened to Joseph was wrong. It was sin. It was unjust. And Joseph had no ability to stop what was being done to him. He didn't have the power to stop it. He could not control the choices of others. So he had to decide inside himself, in governance of himself, how he would deal with the injustices in his own mind, in his own heart. Would he become resentful? Would he become bitter? Would he become hateful? Would he fantasize about all the ways he was going to torture his brothers if he ever got back and the things he was going to put poison in her food, a little X-lax while they eat, you know, something just to make them pay? Is he, is he fantasizing vengeance fantasies, looking forward to the day when, when God will torture them in the fires as long as they deserve to make them pay? Would he seek to sabotage the people who purchased him in the slave market? Would he surrender his life to God? Would he seek God's presence, God's methods, God's living law in his heart? Would he seek to follow God's purposes? Would he trust God to right his wrongs? Would he refuse to become bitter and angry? Would he refuse to become self-centered and fear-driven? Would Joseph, in the face of corruption, become corrupt himself? Or would he become more just, more righteous through trusting God and living out God's methods in the face of sinful attacks against him? And this is where Satan tricks and traps so many. It's a trick and a trap. When we are wronged, and I'm not talking pretend wrong, imagine our actual wrong. Joseph was wronged objectively. When we're wronged, when we're sinned against, that injury, that wrong, that abuse, that exploitation plants an evil seed in the innocent person's heart. It's a, it, 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 it puts a seed in the heart. And if that seed is not extracted, it will sprout into anger, resentment, bitterness, hate, and it will grow into fantasies of vengeance, desire and practices to protect self because I never want to get hurt again. Nobody's ever going to hurt me like this again. So I want to get more power. I want to become more powerful. So I want to get into positions of authority. I want to get a gun. I want to get elected. I want to get, well, I want to get more money. I want to do whatever I can. I want to control. I'm going to control others to make sure I'm safe. It blossoms into self-seeking, self-protection, defensiveness, hostility, need to control. And the innocent person becomes corrupted and eventually like the one who wronged them. That's how sin spreads. It's insidious. God has given us a tool, a means of rooting such evil out of our heart when we've actually been wronged. Or sometimes it's so insidious, we weren't the one wronged. We've observed somebody we love being wronged. I had a patient come to see me whose daughter got married and shortly after the wedding, still in the first year of marriage, the daughter comes over, black eye, broken lip, being beaten by her husband. Now clearly the daughter's being sinned against, yes? But the parent who came to see me enraged, angry, hostile, Fantasies of, I want to take a baseball bat over there and break him and beat him. 
that sin is not only planting a seed in the daughter's heart, it's, it's spreading. It's planting a seed in the mother, in the father's heart. This is what sin does. It, it spreads because it's wrong. It makes us outrage. We want to do something to punish. God has given us a tool to root the evil seeds out. You know what that tool is? Forgiveness. Not our forgiveness when we've sinned that we perceive, uh, please forgive me, Lord. Yeah, that, 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 that is not what we're talking. When somebody says, we forgive them. When we forgive those who've wronged us, we let go of the anger, the resentment, the desire for vengeance and retaliation. That seed is removed from our hearts. And we actually, through God's grace, have a desire to see that person and the wickedness in their heart transformed. We want to see the evil in them removed. We want to see them turn to Christ-likeness. We want to see them turn from an enemy to a friend. That, that is the gospel message. This is what, what the entire message of the New Testament is. Forgiving somebody who's wronged us prevents the innocent person from becoming corrupted and hardened in heart, but it does not change the evildoer. Our forgiveness of the wrongdoer prevents us from being corrupted, but it doesn't make them trustworthy. And therefore, forgiving somebody doesn't mean we trust them. We only trust after there is persuasive evidence that the wrongdoer has repented and been changed and is now willing to sacrifice self for others that they can be trusted. They're trustworthy. And we see this, this is in the story of Joseph. This is what he tested his brothers on. Had they changed? Were they willing to protect the little brother or sacrifice another brother to protect themselves? That's what the tests were all about, because Joseph forgave, but he didn't know if he could trust them. And you can't know by declaration, by proclamation, by claim. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. Won't you forgive me? Okay, you can trust me now. Well, I forgive you, but I still don't trust you because words don't make you trustworthy. Joseph chose, chose to trust God and apply God's methods, the law of love in his life, and how did then Joseph, once he's purchased as property by Potiphar, how does he treat Potiphar? Think it through. Imagine that circumstance. Respectfully. Respectfully, faithfully, loyally, reliably, diligently, with true, he was dedicated, an honest worker. He carried out all of his slave duties with integrity. Yes or no? Yes. It's an incredible story. It goes against every notion of our modern thinking of justice, of human justice in our contemporary world. Why would Joseph behave this way? Why would he do it? Well, he's just fear, fearful, just afraid. He didn't want to get whipped. Is that why he did it? Out of fear? Just to avoid the whip? Did he do it because, um, I mean, if you think of this, Potiphar was an Egyptian. He wasn't part of the Joseph's family. He wasn't a descendant of Abraham. He, he wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh. He was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. More than that, though, he was a slave owner. Did such a man, such a pagan slave owner, deserve Joseph's loyalty? Then why did Joseph give it? He didn't deserve it. He's a corrupt pagan slave owner. Shouldn't he started a movement that Hebrew lives matter? <laughs> why didn't Joseph do that? Yes. Maybe he finally understood how design law works, how that we can rise above what the people around us may be like, that we can still trust God and that we can trust him to make it right and so that we can 
Be people of integrity. Oh, I like where you're going with that very much. It says, so was Joseph loyal to Potiphar because of who Potiphar was, or was Joseph loyal to Potiphar because of who Joseph was? Joseph, a loyal subject of the Creator, sought to honor God. Remember with the temptation of his wife? How can I sin against God and do this? He wasn't doing this for Potiphar. He was doing this because of who he was as a being created in the image of God who lives godly principles, shines the godly light wherever he goes, regardless of the darkness and evil of people around him. One of Satan's most effective traps is to incite real injustice, real wrongs against people, and then get people to seek justice, to to make it right, to do justice through the application of more of Satan's methods. His laws, Satan's laws, imposed rules, inflictions of punishments, retaliation, because such evildoers deserve it. It's right, Satan says, for us to be resentful and to harbor fantasies of suffering toward our enemies. It's even right to teach that God will one day, if you don't get a blood payment in a book, he will use his power to torture you as long as you deserve before he kills you. That's a righteous and just God. Do you know that is taught by leaders in our church? Every sin must be punished. He's quoting from Desire of Ages 761, where Ellen White describes in the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed, um, that uh, if man should sin, God cannot forgive the sinner. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This is Satan's view of God. He inspires humans to take on that role. Yes. Punish, quote, sin, injustice. It is right or just in the world system to use whatever means you can to ensure that the people you identify as immoral or evil get punished. Why do you think Joseph... Here's a question maybe you haven't thought of before. Why do you think Joseph didn't try to escape? Didn't try to run home? At some point, he is given authority over Potiphar's entire house. Yes or no? Don't you think if he had authority over the entire house, he could have arranged for a horse or a chariot, or some pretext about going on an errand for Potiphar, and out of the country he flees? You don't think he could have arranged that? He's a pretty smart guy here, isn't he? Do we have any evidence he ever tried anything like that? Why, why do you think that's the case? Doesn't have much to go home to. So, so you're sold as a slave in Egypt, and you're thinking... I won't run away because my brothers don't like me. My, my, my father, though, he didn't know about it. My, I have a father that, what, what do you think? And I have Benjamin. What, what do you think he thinks about that? If you were there, you wouldn't run home to dad? When he was captured and the caravan was taking him away, he looked back on his land and didn't think he would ever see it again. But it was in that moment that he made a decision to commit to give it to God. And I think that commitment that he made carried him through. No, I love what that's exactly right. This is the point I'm making. Yes, excellent. Joseph didn't run away because he had surrendered the outcome to God. He was trusting God with it. Um, let me ask you this. Was Joseph's presence in Egypt, as a slave even, part of the events that ultimately result, resulted in Joseph being elevated to the second highest position in, in, the, in the nation and ultimately providing for his family during the famine that kept open avenue for Messiah. Yeah, it was part of the whole process. And, and did God know the future and know? Well, remember, he had dreams uh, that he, he told his brother about his brothers bowing down before him. So, yes, God foreknew that this was going to happen. Would God's plan for Joseph to protect his family, and the avenue for Messiah, which is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15, which is the whole point of the Old Testament while we're getting these stories to teach us the larger reality. Would God's plan be realized if Joseph does not trust God? So if Joseph flees Egypt, he won't be where God needs him. Is it possible that Joseph stayed in Egypt because he was surrendered to God and trusting God and waiting for God to tell him 
what direction to take. Just like Jacob was eventually told by God to go back home. If you remember, God told him, say, go home. It's time to go home. Or Joseph and Mary were told to flee to Egypt and then told to come back. And Joseph never got a direction from God to flee, so he stayed. What would, if Joseph was not making faith-based decisions, I trust you, God, I'm looking for your leading, Uh, I'm waiting for you to direct me. If he wasn't making faith-based decisions, if he was making selfish decisions, then what might he have done? Self-survival decisions. He probably tries to escape, which is the automatic human reflex. So not only does Satan tempt us to retaliate to injustice and ungodly methods, Satan also inflames the selfishness and the survival drives so that we will often try to solve the problem ourselves without without seeking God and God's purposes or guidance in the circumstance. We just try to survive, do the best we can. Despite Joseph's high moral standard, his faithful and loyal service, he suffers more injustice. He's accused of sexual assault and imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. Uh, in my, my view, it's never stated overtly. At least I don't believe it is. Um, my view is that he was imprisoned because Potiphar didn't believe his wife. Had he believed his wife, he'd have been executed. He's a slave. That's my personal view. So he was so loyal and so faithful. And then once Potiphar's wife makes the accusation publicly to all the rest of the household, in order to save face and the household reputation, he had no choice but to dismiss Joseph. I bet I bet there were some iceberg relationships and attitudes in that marriage after that. They were there before. Yeah, they were there before. Yeah, that's why she was approaching. Yeah, but I bet it got worse. So, but he's falsely accused. He's imprisoned. And how does he respond again? With outrage? With anger? With bitterness? Or does he immediately be faithful and loyal to the prison overseer? And becomes, pretty soon he's running the prison. Just think that through. <laughs> and eventually, of course, he interprets the dreams and he's second only to Pharaoh in power. And once he, I'll notice, this is very evidence-based of the character of Joseph. When I make the assumption that he did not fantasize bitterness or anger or resentment, we have evidence to support my assumption when he is now elevated to the second most powerful position in all of Egypt. Does he take revenge on Potiphar and Potiphar's wife? There's no record of it. He could have, couldn't he? He could have demanded reparations. For his false imprisonment. But he didn't. It just dawned on me the, the training that he got in administration, administering a household, mm-hmm. then administering over a prison and having to delegate authority. This is all all training for him for administrating a government. It's interesting, isn't it, how God can take these things and, and use them for a larger purpose. What happens to hearts of people today when they focus on past wrongs, real wrongs? I'm not talking pretend wrong. Real injustices, real wrongs, either to themselves or to their ancestors. And that's what they focus on. What happens to them? Bitterness, resentment. It shows you. you. That's exactly right. Bitterness and resentment. And they will often seek power and authority, typically through force of arms or government, to make others pay. That's Satan's trap. Revenge. We cannot win God's cause using Satan's methods. You've heard me say that many times. God cannot win his cause using Satan's methods. And, of course, he never will. He will never use Satan's methods. And God cannot win his cause through people whose hearts harbor resentment, bitterness, and desire for retaliation, people who long to hurt others. He can't win his cause that way. 
God can win his cause through people who trust him and allow him to eliminate their fear and hurt and anger and selfishness and bitterness and jealousy and, and, and people uh, who desire uh, for reconciliation with God and to reveal God's purposes on earth such that they love their enemies and pray for those who spitefully abuse them, then our enemies become our friends as the Holy Spirit wins them. That's the only way forward. Or they harden themselves completely and are eternally lost at some point in the future. So the so-called social justice movements in the world today, they're all traps of Satan. They're all traps seeking to use human governments with human made-up laws, with human coercive enforcement to somehow make things right. But what they do is they actually punish or inflict harm, and they always cause more injustice. Only God's laws of love, truth, and liberty heal and unite humanity. So we, our challenge is to come back in the face of wrong and put it before the Lord, trust him, ask him to heal our hearts, and let him fix the circumstance and bring the outcome that he would have. Because blessed are the meek, our peacemakers, that's right, uh, meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the first lesson from Joseph's life is this personal lesson. The battle for each human heart over sin, when we've been wronged, to overcome through God's grace with love, forgiveness, truth. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is an object lesson of the entire plan of salvation. Joseph represents Jesus. And the events of Joseph's life reveal aspects of what Jesus will go through and accomplish for us. And let's, let's go through these very quickly. Uh, you've heard me say this before. There are seven miracle births in the Old Testament. There is the virgin birth of Jesus, but seven miracle births in the Old Testament. All, these are not virgin births. These were seven women had fertility problems or they were, had infertility, and God per- performed a miracle of healing healing their infertility, and they became pregnant in the normal way. Okay, But there were seven of them. All seven of them had sons who represent or object lessons of Jesus and some aspect of Jesus' ministry for us. The first, of course, was Sarah, who had Isaac, and Isaac was the promised son who would be sacrificed, representing Jesus. Rebecca had Jacob, and Jacob, of course, wrestles uh, with God. He wrestles to overcome his weakness and became Israel, the father of a nation built on 12 sons. Jesus became human, wrestled with temptation, overcame to become the cornerstone of the church built on the 12 apostles. Manoah's wife uh, gave birth to Samson. Blessed with strength to deliver Israel and act as a judge and rule over them. And of course, Jesus is our deliverer to deliver us from our enemies and he acts as our uh, protector and ruler over us. Uh, Hannah had Samuel and Samuel was the high priest. And of course, Jesus is our heavenly high priest. The Shunammite woman that housed Elijah had a child that died and rose from the dead. And Jesus, of course, died and rose from the dead. Elizabeth had John the Baptist, who was the greatest spokesperson for God. But Jesus, ultimately, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the ultimately greatest spokesperson for God. And then that was six. The seventh was Joseph. Rachel had Joseph. And Joseph, and I'm going to go through in much greater detail now, the object lesson that Joseph's life reveals about Jesus and the plan of salvation. And this is why so much of Genesis is taken up on the life of Joseph because it's an object lesson for the entire plan of salvation. Jacob gave Joseph a robe of many colors. This was Jacob's way of setting Joseph apart as firstborn. Firstborn in Bible times is not birth order. Firstborn is position of authority and inheritance. You could say, set him apart as family head, the leader of the family. That's what firstborn actually means. He's the leader of the family, not the birth order. And this, um, and, and the firstborn gets a double inheritance. And this is confirmed in scripture in First Chronicles 5.2. This is what the scripture reads. The rights of the firstborn belong to Joseph. And you can think all the reasons why. 
But one reason is very likely because he was the firstborn of his true wife. All the other women were not his true wife. Leah was a wife of deception. The others were stand-ins. So that's, for whatever reason, firstborn. And of course, what does it say in the scripture in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, the object lesson? It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It doesn't mean uh, some people who don't believe in Jesus' divinity will use this. See, he was born. It means he had it. No, this is not about actually being born. It is a term of authority. He is the first being of authority. He is the one through whom, and it goes on to describe what, for him by all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, the thrones or power, rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and all things in him hold together. That's what it means the firstborn is that position of authority. And Jesus, and so Joseph, represents that. Joseph's brothers were jealous, betrayed him, lied about him. Lucifer was jealous in heaven, betrayed Jesus. Lying about God led a third of the angels into rebellion. He lied to Adam and Eve, leading humanity into sin. And then when Jesus came to earth, he was despised and rejected of men. His own people betrayed him. They lied about him. They handed him over to the Romans to be killed. You see the object lesson parallel so far. Okay? Joseph was sold and became a slave. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it reads, You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. And by looking like other men and by sharing human nature, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, the death on the cross. Joseph was a slave. Jesus took the position of the slave. Joseph was faithful in all of his duties as a slave. Jesus was faithful in all his duties as her human savior. Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but rejected the temptations. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, but rejected the temptations. Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Jesus was falsely accused by the, uh, the Jewish leaders. Joseph was wrongly imprisoned in a dungeon. Jesus was wrongly imprisoned in the grave. Joseph was raised from the dungeon to the right hand of the sovereign. Jesus rose from the grave to the right hand of God. Joseph was a Hebrew, but he identified as an Egyptian and took an Egyptian name. Jesus is divine, but he became human. Joseph married an Egyptian woman. Jesus' bride is from this sinful earth. Joseph prepared a place for his family. Jesus prepares a place for us. Seven years of plenty to prepare for seven years of famine. Seven in the Bible represents spiritual completion. We are in a spiritual war. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven who provides spiritual sustenance for all who will take. So Jesus has a storehouse in heaven of spiritual food sufficient for all of our needs. Despite living in a world of sin, a world of spiritual famine, a wilderness often described in Scripture, Jesus has a storehouse of spiritual food that will nurture those who trust him. Joseph required those who wanted grain of Egypt to purchase it, and ultimately they sold everything they had. To, to the Egyptian monarch in order to have the grain. In order for us to partake the bread of heaven, we must surrender all other means whereby we try to obtain eternal life. We are instructed in Revelation to buy from Jesus the gold tried in the fire. Buy from him. That's what it says in Scripture. Buy from me the gold. The gold tried in the fire is the righteous character. How do we buy from him this? This is the barter purchase method. We exchange what we have for what he has. We exchange our sin for his righteousness. We exchange our guilt and shame for his purity and peace. We exchange our condemnation for his commendation. And we exchange our eternal death for his eternal life. This is how we buy. We surrender and we receive. 
but we have to surrender all, just as the Egyptians did. They had to give it all up. Very powerful. Joseph received the land of Goshen, a rich, bountiful land from the sovereign for his family. Jesus receives the earth made new from his father for his family. The brothers were alienated from Joseph through their own selfishness and betrayal. They had, a cha- they had to change, change of heart, in order to be reconciled to Joseph, who had already forgiven them. We are alienated from God by sinfulness in our own lives and hearts, and we must be changed in order to be reconciled to God, who has already forgiven us. Pretty cool, isn't it? This is one of the reasons for the Old Testament. We've done this over and over and again. Real historic people doing real historic stuff, and the history of their lives are an accurate history of what happened, but the reason they're recorded and these specific lives are often chosen, is because they also model a larger reality. It's not just a history book. Sunday's lesson. I'm getting to Sunday. Back to my normal, more normal pace. Uh, third paragraph says, The future will indeed confirm Jacob's wishes because Joseph eventually will receive the rights of the firstborn. No wonder then that Joseph's brothers hated him so much and could not even engage in peaceful conversation with him. No wonder then that Joseph's brothers hated him so much because Jacob's wishes were that, that If I'm reading this correctly, they're saying, because Jacob wanted Joseph to have the rights of the firstborn, that's why they hated him so much. Is that how it reads? It's a justification for it. No wonder. It is not the reason, people. The reason they hated him so much was because they did not love him. If they actually loved him, if they had a new heart and were reborn from fear and selfishness. They didn't let fear and selfishness dominate them. They actually loved him. When when the Father blessed him, they would have celebrated and rejoiced for him. Why didn't they love him? Why didn't they love him? I would say they were raised by a mother who had bitterness toward her sister who was the So Adam and Eve in Eden... Prior to the taking of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, their natural state of attitude towards others would be love. After Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were... And fear causes us to be concerned with self. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We inherit what Adam and Eve did to the species. So our children and all the mothers in the room... I'd love to see if uh, there's if any mother can raise their hand and say this. When your children were babies and little tiny ones, they were always first concerned with whether you got good rest at night. <laughs> and you got sleep and whether you got fed. They were primarily concerned in your needs before their own. Is that how it worked? They're always concerned with self. They're not aware. This is our inheritance. So we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're not born guilty. We're born terminal with a condition that, if not remedied, results in eternal death. And so why did they not love their brother? Because they were born with hearts that were selfish, as we all are. And somewhere along their upbringing, they had never yet converted. They had never yet given their heart over and trust to the Lord, come to love others more than self. Somewhere in the 20 years... And this is often what sin does. What was it that brought David to conversion? Was David converted when he faced Goliath? Was David converted when he faced the lion? Was David converted when he went out against the Philistines? Was he a converted or an unconverted believer? He was unconverted. He believed the Lord, but his heart had not been transformed. As evidenced by... See, just just think this through with me. You're going out to face a giant in hand-to-hand combat with a sling. Does that circumstance naturally result in great confidence or does that circumstance actually heighten your fear and anxiety level? What what would it do, the natural circumstance? Or a lion. There's a full-grown lion that roars and is about to attack you. Does that circumstance make you feel great peace? Oh, it's a kitty wanting to come up at it. Or does it immediately raise your fear and anxiety level? 
And when your fear and anxiety levels go up and you do believe in God, what do you typically do in those circumstances? Lord, help me. I can't handle this. This is beyond me. I will never succeed here if I don't have your help. And you immediately are doing either preparatory prayer before you go out to Goliath. I trust you, Lord. I'll know you deliver me, and I'll give you the glory here, Lord. I'm not going to try to do this on my own, which which he did. Or it's an emergency prayer. Lord, is lying. I need help. But now he's king. David is king. The enemy's been defeated. Saul's in the grave. He's not running anymore. He's empowered. He can handle it now. He can handle it. And what happened? Not only did he fall with Bathsheba, he did one of the most dastardly deeds ever. Premeditated. And after that, he's confronted by Nathan. And after that, we read Psalms 51. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. What brought him to the point to actually not just believe in God for power to succeed, but to humble himself and recognize there's a brokenness. God, what you want is you want uh, 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 brokenness and transformation in the inner man. Sacrifices and offerings you don't want. The sacrifice you want is a contrite and right spirit. What brought him to that point? He had to face who he really was. Which was, which was the sin that he committed that exposed. Now understand, the sin he committed was a symptom. Symptom, symptom, symptom of the condition with which he was born. He'd been struggling with his whole life, but he hadn't yet actually overcome in God's grace. That was the same thing for Jacob that we read about last week when he lied and deceived and went off and did all these things. It wasn't until he was faced with the potential threat that he finally, and his fear of what his sin had done to Esau and that Esau's coming in 400 men, it was that fear that finally led him to the point of total surrender. These things have been written for those who the ends of the world will be faced. So why didn't the brothers love him? It was their actions they were Because they were born in fear, they were born in selfishness, their childhood upbringing did not bring them to the point. And some, sometimes in our childhood, and Joseph evidently had the point where he gave his heart to the Lord early. And then his trials, he doubled down on his commitment to the Lord. He was tempted, but he reinvested in his trust in the Lord. So, so Joseph was one from childhood who had that loving relationship, but his brothers didn't for whatever reason. But after what they did to Joseph, the 20 years, the, the guilt, the, the shame that they were dealing with, seeing their father, the agony they put their father, somewhere along the and then and then the, the things that Joseph made them face, which we'll read about next week, in our lesson next week, they actually came to, to transformation as well. So David, you know, facing the giant, the lions and everything. Could he have been converted? But like Paul, then you look at Paul and he says, I do things that I don't want to do. As he grew in that, could he have not, when he became king, he loved the Lord, but tempting in other things that he just... So when, when Jesus said to Peter, right before the crucifixion, when you're something, feed my sheep. When you're converted. Three years he's been following him. Peter walks on the water. Peter goes out with the 70, does all these miracles. Um, Peter's a believer. But Jesus says to him, when you're converted, converted, feed my sheep. There's a difference between believing and, and walking the journey and coming to the point and actually dying to self. There's part of that journey. Uh, and I think the Psalm 51 and what we see in David's life afterwards, after Bathsheba's incident and after the Psalm 51, do we see David ever taking advantage of anyone again? That's when he really changed. Prior to that, a lot of stuff going on. Even when his son rebelled, he wouldn't take action. Yep. Yep. We see the difference. His heart changed. And Paul's heart changed. And you see the big difference also. Prior to his Damascus Road, Paul's willing to use the power of the state to coerce, to punish, to imprison but after Damascus Road, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. I'd gladly give my life that my fellow Jews could be saved. You see the total orientation shift in the methodologies used in how we treat other people. David was willing to use the force of arms and coercion, manipulation prior. Believe in God. God's the powerful one. But his heart hadn't actually been converted to the methods of truth and love. And so brothers have that fear and selfishness. They have, they don't love Joseph. If they love Joseph, um, they would celebrate him. So this idea in the lesson 
that it, that uh, was because of the good shown to Joseph by dad. That was what dad did by giving the robe of many colors, by indicating one him to be fir- uh, the firstborn position. It was dad's blessing and grace and goodness. That is the reason why the brothers hated him and acted against him. This is classic, worldly, sinful, worldly think. It's the blame game. They hated Joseph because of what Jacob did. It wasn't their fault. If Jacob hadn't have blessed Joseph, we would have never sold him. It's corrupt. It's actually corrupt. If someone else is being blessed, it is viewed as a slight against us. If someone else is advancing, uh, it is viewed as an obstacle to our advancement. So teachers in our school systems are instructed that they're not to praise a student who gets a really good paper or an A, and don't tell them what a good job they did on a test or a musical performance. Don't say that in front of the class, because it'll make the other kids who didn't get good grades feel slighted. We don't hurt their feelings, so we're not going to do it. World think it's corrupt. Yes. I was thinking about the comment that the gentleman over here made um, in regard, and the verse was, that you brought up was John twenty one seventeen, and um, it speaks of love. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, feed my sheep, and I feel like love can grow and change and understanding, and it, it transforms us. And so... While we can be saved, if, if we don't follow, we can make a choice to not be saved. What does it mean to be saved? What is, what you is, have a personal relationship with Jesus. Saving relationship. What's a saving relationship mean? You have love. You trust him. And if you trust God, what's that result in? Well, I trust that Jesus died in my place and he will pay my penalty. And if I, and I've claimed his blood and I trust that my sins have been paid for and therefore I'll be declared to be righteous even though I remain unrighteous. I trust in the blood and the blood payment. Is that what we're talking about? No. That's not salvation. Trusting Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in and sup with him. What's the door they're being referred to? Heart. In the in the um, Old Testament sanctuary, the law was placed where? In the ark. In the ark. In the New Testament, Hebrews eight, the New Covenant, I will write my law in your heart and mind. So salvation is restoring in the Spirit Temple the character, law, principles of God. And you're exactly right on it. Love that when we trust Jesus, Romans five five, He pours His love into our hearts. And we are converted from fear and self-centered operations to trust in God and love others operations. That's conversion. That's salvation. That's regeneration. That's rebirth. That's renewal. That's circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. That's the reality of what salvation is. It's restoring us to Christ's likeness and righteousness. It's reality-based. And that circumcision of the heart would have been when Nathan went to David and said, you sinned, and he, he laid out the story and then let him know that's you. That And that's when real conversion. Enlightened his mind and his heart to see something that he... That's correct. Up until that point, David was a believer in the powerful God and believed that if you were part of the tribe and you did the right rituals and you uh, went to, uh, and shut your businesses down on the right day and you were in good faith and that God had blessed him and had been anointed and all the stuff that he did, but he'd never actually had the deep examination of his heart to cut out the fear and selfishness. And that's when it happened for him. And neither had Peter, and neither had Peter until that point. It was before right. Christ died. That was in Luke. Um, and he said, um, when you turn back to me, you must strengthen your brothers. He had not been converted. He thought that Jesus was going to wipe out the Romans still. And, and that's why he denied him three times. And it was after his denial that he went out and wept bitterly. And that's when he was converted. And that's when Jesus restored him and said, now go feed my sheep. Because your heart's been set right finally. But he was a believer for three and a half years following. But his heart yet hadn't been converted. i got to keep going with this. Um, so... They, the classic world think somebody else gets blessed. That's justification for you being angry at them. No, it's not. 
All sin, all evil, all exploitation is because of sin in the hearts of those who do the evil. Not because of some good somebody else did to somebody else that said, ah, he blessed him. That's why. It's because he, he no, it's because of the sin in your own heart. The story of Joseph dem- demonstrates this. It's why Joseph is such a powerful example of Jesus. Despite the multiple wrongs against him, he never chose to, uh, he never chose to hurt those who hurt him. Joseph's brothers had consequences both to Joseph, but to them. They had regret. They had guilt. They had sadness. They had to look at their father's grief for years, and that, and that worked on them. And those consequences were used by the Holy Spirit to bring them to conviction and eventual conversion themselves, which is demonstrated in how they treated Benjamin. Uh, in the fourth paragraph, it says, <laughs> uh, another reason. So one reason the brothers hated him is because he was blessed by dad. Another reason is he would report the brothers and what they were doing to dad. And the lesson actually uses these words right here. No one likes a snitch. (laughs) Snitches get stitches. Okay, snitches get stitches. There you go. Okay, Uh, but again, this is the lesson. Advancing world think, sin think, selfish think. This is classic imposed law think. Uh, No one likes a stitch because a snitch. Sorry. Okay. No one likes a snitch because the snitch is telling the authorities and it's the informing of the authority that gets the wrongdoer in trouble with the authority. Uh, It's not that the action itself causes any problem. It's only being reported to the authority and then you're in trouble with the authority who will inflict the problem on you. Therefore, if the snitch didn't tell, it all be good. So the problem is with the snitch, not with what I've done. That's human law. Okay, and and it's, it's just incredible to me that that this was actually put in here like this. But in design law, the damage doesn't uh, the damage actually comes from the sin itself, not from the ruling authority. In design law, it's the one in authority who actually has the remedy to stitch <laughs> or heal. The, the damage. So imagine this instead of being reported to the legal authorities for a legal violation that will result in inflicted legal punishments that we understand the reality of God's universe and the design law. And then this illustration, your brother, instead of being a such, your brother goes to your physician father and reports that he's noticed what appears to be a cancerous lesion growing on your back. Now is your attitude, I can't believe you just snitched me out and ratted me out to dad about this big lesion that's going to kill me. Or do you say, oh, I love my brother for not letting a life-threatening condition be ignored. That is the difference. I'm going to have to skip some ideas here, and I'm going to one other thing in the lesson. Joseph was well aware of his brothers were converted, and he worked for their conversion. Yes, I would say that's true. And then in the last paragraph in Sunday's lesson, it says the ge- about the dreams, about the dreams. It says the genuine prophetic character of the dreams was even ratified by the fact that they are repeated. I truly find this incredulous or incredible. I don't know which word we want to use here or both. I cannot believe that this would be put in the lesson as an evidence of validity. If I'm understanding it correctly, and I, I, put, I put this in my notes, and maybe I misunderstand what is being written here. But if I understand correctly, I'll read it again, the genuine prophetic, the genuine prophetic character of the dreams was even ratified by the fact that they are repeated. I can tell you with 100% certainty that having dreams that recur does not mean they are prophetic message. PTSD patients frequently have recurring dreams. And they're not the only ones. The evidence that the dreams were prophetic is that they actually came true. And until they came true, there was no evidence that they were prophetic. Yeah, I mean, Pharaoh's magicians counterfeited 
some of the miracles repeat they repeated counterfeits but uh, i just i just i just so i had to just deal with that folks if you have recurrent dreams it, it, you shouldn't interpret that to mean that you're being sent a prophetic message Dear Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your watch care. We, we pray that you will uh, give us ever-increasing insight and wisdom into your kingdom and make us more effective in sharing your message for this time in human history that you may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.